0: A.B. Active the Hive. Launching new Hive sequence. Welcome, welcome to the Smarter Marketing Revolution. Presented by Hidden Force Media. With your host. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh, I got something good for you today. I hope you're at a spot where you can take notes. If you're driving, no worries. If you're at the gym, walking the dog, doing something that you shouldn't be doing, I got you here. Let's pay attention for a little bit. Come back and take notes if you're busy driving because this is going to be something that you want to pay attention to and you're going to want to come back and take notes on. I know this when I was writing it out and doing all of our research for this for the book that we're writing Uh, This is going to hold a massive, massive spot for what we've got coming down the pipeline for you. Today, we're going to talk about motion, novelty, error, and ambiguity. And as far as formulas go, that's a fairly perplexing one, isn't it? Uh, From any previous perspective, it doesn't seem to have any pattern, and the words kind of lack any obvious uh, interconnection. And yet, these four words form the basic platform upon which the most effective advertising and other messages are are predicated. So how can I state that with such certainty? Because the brain says so. Research in neuroscience labs worldwide have resulted in greater understanding not only of how the brains function, but also the characteristics of the stimuli it notices and what values it places on it. Four of the most important are motion, novelty, error, and ambiguity. So let's start with motion. Our brains are built to seek out, recognize, process, and evaluate motion as a top priority. Viewers' subconscious minds will immediately focus on elements that are in motion and commercials. Static imagery draws far less attention. From our earliest days of sub-Saharan Africa, we've attuned ourselves to our surroundings. The ability to perceive motion translated directly to survival. See the prey before the prey sees you. Notice movement before it turns fatal. Identify quickly and accurately when activity is benign and when it's threatening. Now, we developed acute visual systems and coupled it with highly sensitive neurological systems for deciphering and responding to what we see. Now that we no longer have to expose ourselves to all these crazy mortal dangers that we used to have to, just to go and find something to eat, that is, unless you're forced to take the freeway at rush hour for takeout, our brain retained those remarkable capabilities. We're programmed to pay the highest attention to visual stimuli. And this is the simple explanation for why TV advertising almost immediately became the most powerful form of commercial communication. We're geared to watch things. It's why YouTube took off. It's why reels have taken off. All this stuff around video components and social media is the key element to where most brands are missing the ball. It also explains why mobile video advertising is emerging so rapidly as a global marketing phenomenon. We love our smartphones, and in part because they reward us with what are fundamentally built to want, appreciate, and value, which is activity in visual forms that sparks response for our subconscious. It doesn't matter what it sparks, just that we want it, we need it. Our brains are constantly searching for it. It's one of the cool things that I learned when I was working inside of the float tank industry, and after I'd logged quite a few hours of floating, is that when you remove your when you remove visual stimuli inside of a float tank, your brain will start to actually hallucinate images or shapes or uh, energy balls because it's trying to find something to focus and fixate on. So, because we don't have anything, it'll actually start to create stuff around us. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Taking it back to Greek mythology a little bit, for those of you that have been following me on social for a while, you know I'm a big fan of the Greek gods. Uh, Narcissus fell in love with his shimmering but static self-image reflected in that pool. Just imagine how enamored he would be if he could watch nonstop videos of himself on social media. Now, I want to get down to the practicality with this concept. How can you use motion to maximize your advantage inside of advertising? I want to go into a concept that we call the clock face. And I never really understood just how elemental that phrase really is until I became immersed in neuroscience and neuromarketing. Now I find it absolutely profound. We're neurologically designed to prefer clockwise motion. And if you're not uh, concurring a storyboard or animatic, especially if you're planning on testing consumers' reactions to them, Design your material so that way the motion flows in a clockwise direction. If you're a cinematographer or a commercial director, think in circles. Does this mean that you have to have your commercial populated by people or objects moving around the screen according to the strict 12 paradigm? No. It just simply means that when you're setting up a map or to map the action on your TV commercial or your spot or your social media ad or even your content... Don't do it in a counterclockwise activity. Instead, keep the flow in a clockwise direction. It doesn't have to be a fully circular motion, although that would be optimal. Uh, a brief aside here, sorry, my phone just clicked. The other part is that of the clock face phase is that it's so elemental as in the face reference. Elsewhere as we go through this, you'll learn about how we as humans are completely and utterly drawn to the human face. And again, this is because we're basically neurologically wired that way. Now we're going to get into something super specific. And this is a key secret that if I would have known this uh, back about six years ago when I first started doing this, I would have easily three or four X'd what I've made all my clients so far just by understanding this one thing. There's a guideline that we offer advertisers, agencies, and entertainment companies about where to feature motion on a screen. This guideline applies to featuring motion on any screen from TVs to computers to mobile phones, iPads, video game platforms, and more. And This study across multiple categories and platforms confirms the effectiveness following this guideline. Now follow me here. Pay attention. This is going to make you a lot of money if you know how to implement this correctly. You already know that motion that resolves clockwise is neurologically superior. Now, You also know that motion in the periphery is also neurologically favorable, right? I see something moving in the bushes to the side of me that I don't have in focus. I'm going to start to pay attention to this. So, I'm going to take this one step further. Motion from the periphery of a screen towards the center is superior to motion from the center outwards to the periphery. The brain has certain specific preferences for the way in which stimuli is delivered. Matching those can mean that your material is given more attention and earns higher emotional engagement, better chances for memory retention, and higher levels of purchase intent at the point of sale. It has to move from the outside in. And typically when I'm doing this, I like to move from the bottom left-hand corner up into the center. Now we're going to get into novelty. And depending on where you may have started with this podcast or with any of my other podcast episodes I put out, or following me on social, you've probably already encountered a fundamental discovery that I talk a lot about when it comes to novelty, which is that the brain is always craving something new. So what? Why does why should I care? By emphasizing what is novel, you automatically appeal to the brain's highest priorities, and in doing so, you help ensure that your message is accordingly accurate, top of mind remembered all the things that you want out of your brand and out of your business this is able to help do now you encounter this concept again because it's such a central tenant of modern neuroscience in fact it may help explain why modern advertising has naturally gravitated towards emphasizing newness we humans are built to seek what is novel in our surroundings and the reason for this is really twofold first being able to identify change in the immediate environment has served us well in terms of sheer survival. And second, as we evolved in developing a drive to discover new things, it led to improvements in everything from finding new food, to creating new technologies, to intermingling with new tribes, such as metal weapons, to hunt with steam cylinders, to revolutionizing manufacturing and transportation, and advanced forms of methods of communication, among many other things. And when we find something new that's pleasing, our brains want to highlight and retain that data for future reference as much as possible. So our brains actually build internal reward circuits, new neurological networks that develop in response to information from our senses that represent our new experiences. So how does this translate into an actionable step for creating advertising that's more effective? Almost any way that you can telegraph to the brain that something is new will grab attention. Attention is the first step towards the ultimate goal of raising awareness, stimulating initial product or service trial, motivating repeat purchases, or viewing intent, building brand loyalty, or many of the other advertising KPIs that everybody wants to go after. So there's a few ways to do this. We like what's called the pop-out phenomenon. Now, there's a few good examples of the pop-out phenomenon. You can Google them. Uh, I'll post up something inside of my IG story here when this episode comes out as well. So those of you that are listening same day that it goes live, you'll get a little bit of a competitive advantage of around people around you. That's at alex.vonderhaar, V-O-N-D-E-R-H-A-A-R on Instagram. You can find me. I've got a big nebula around my profile picture. Super easy to find. The image explains this really well, and when you start to see, your brain will immediately draw to that unusual imagery. And pop-outs are one application of the novelty principle. They're a particularly effective one, too. That's why you'll see them used in bold throughout this uh, podcast, or if you read any of my posts. I bold things like crazy inside of my books that I'm writing. I bold things like crazy because it pops out. And when we look for visual or audio ways to incorporate pop-outs into our advertising, whether that's color, unique sounds, uh, people are drawn to it, right? And that's why you'll see them used over and over again, because we're leveraging neurological building blocks that are meant to help us survive. And because of this, It wouldn't allow me just to do this over and over again. Eventually, you would start to become numb to the twinkle, right? And it wouldn't be as effective as the first time I used it to get your attention, especially if I have stuff over top of it. It starts to drown things out. So, as I just stated, it's an essential ingredient into the mix, but it can never be the main part of the dish. Pop-outs can appear anywhere in a visual field or auditory field, Keep the number to one or two anymore and you risk having the brain become fatigued and it's discarding all of them and then you don't remember it other than it was annoying. And image pop-outs are better, and this is a real super ninja hack that I've tested hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue around, which is that put it in the left side of the visual field. I promise you, put it in the left side of the field. Don't ask me why. I'm not going to tell you my secret as to why I think it happens that way and the research that I've read. Just trust me. Put it in the left visual field. And semantic and quantitative pop-outs are better in the right visual fields. Trust me on it. Please, put your graphs, put your uh, quantitative stats on the right, and put your images that are pop-outs on the left. Just trust me. All right, let's talk about error. Why would I advocate something being deliberately incorporating error into our advertising? Because from the brain's point of view, it's actually pretty attractive, engaging, and often irresistible. Aren't those the attributes of effective advertising uh, that we're trying to achieve? So we will purposely put spelling errors, or we'll leave an ad up that's past its key date. So we'll say, this campaign ends on February 2nd, 2022, and it's still up in March. right? And then people leave us comments all the time on a social post. Oh, this ad's still up. Ah." right? You've seen it and I do it on purpose. So when our brain is slammed with stuff like this, it puts the brakes on, but the brain doesn't necessarily say, hey, this ad is wrong and they did it on purpose. They just say it's wrong. So it's intrigued and that there's something new here. So we're playing back on the novelty principle as well. Now, suddenly it has to start to move a ton of additional cognitive resources to whatever that error is, and it's continuing mission to try to make sense of what's actually happening. We'll put copy errors in, we'll do uh, missends, we'll do all types of intentional errors to try to get people to come back. Now, you may have even heard this as a sales or business technique too, right? The idea that if a company is perfect 100% of the time, it's never given the opportunity to show what happens when things go negative and increase brand loyalty. So by having errors somewhere in your system, right? once again, it's like salt. We can't put a ton of it in because if you ate nothing but a salty dish, uh, it'd be bad news bears for your heart and for your taste buds. Same thing with your marketing mix. If all we do is throw errors or uh cheap tricks into the mix, it's never going to work. But nonetheless, the subconscious finds it fascinating. And with no value judgments one way or the other, it just says, huh, there's something going on there. So finding ways to incorporate error into advertising can really help your message stand out amongst the clutter. And the moral to this is that when the brain is involved, sometimes a wrong does make a right. The last thing I wanted to touch on before I give you something super special at the end, is this idea of ambiguity. Our culture has attached a certain negative connotation to the concept of ambiguity. We think of it as like wishy-washy or imprecise or mildly undesirable, but the brain doesn't. In fact, the brain finds ambiguity super compelling, really juicy, and in some key respects, it actually starts to puzzle us. The portrait of the Mona Lisa has been subject of more attention over the centuries than any other painting. We're drawn to it. We hypothesize endlessly about who is she? What is she thinking? Is she smiling or is she not? Why? What is it about this portrait that commands such attention across countries, across cultures, across languages? And once again, neuroscience offers the answer because we can't readily figure it out. It's not easily figure outable. Can you think about a brand that sometimes uses things ambiguously? I can. It's called Ikea, right? They have every capability of putting the instructions in whatever language they wanted to, step-by-step video tutorials on their website, but they don't do it. Because there's value and our brain enjoys the process sometimes of having things to be built on our own with a little bit of ambiguity, it feeds that dopamine sensor in our brain so we can just constantly stay seeking new behaviors with this brand. Can I actually finish it? Yes, I got it done. Was it frustrating? Yeah, but I feel good about myself now that I got it done. You see what type of little ninja hack they pull on you? Let's get back to the Mona Lisa. I think it's a classic definition of ambiguity is her expression. It defies easy explanation, it resists simple categorization, and we're hard-pressed to feel as though we have her all scoped out, because even after all these years, we have no idea. And the brain loves puzzles. So why should you care, right? Why? Why? So in a cluttered messaging environment, using elements that have inherent appeal to the subconscious can help cut through all that clutter and attract the brain's attention. The brain is a massive parallel processor of signals. What do I mean by that? It is designed solely and explicitly for that purpose. And it's further designed to process, analyze, and sort out what those signals mean for our very basic survival all the way up to the most abstract theories as to why we contemplate. The brain is built to search for answers. And standing in front of the portrait of the Mona Lisa, our brain attempts to calculate the message being conveyed. It strives to sort out through the stimuli and to find a familiar pattern and recognizable path, and failing to uncover that, the prefrontal cortex, our CEO of our brain, directs its servant neurobiological centers to spread throughout the brain to redouble their efforts. Try again, try again, go after it and resort it out. If you can't figure it out this time, go after it again, and if something still doesn't turn up, the brain will actually form new connections to register and accommodate this information because neurons that... Fire together, wire together. One way or another, the brain will find a way to wrap itself around this phenomenon and prevail. Within all the searching lies yet another key benefit. As our brains recalculate and process, we're spending more time with the stimulus overall. As focused as we are on Mona Lisa's smile or the mysterious lack thereof, we're also aware of her surroundings, her clothing, the elements in the painting that you may not have initially noticed, But when we apply the principle of ambiguity to some, not all, advertising, you engage the brain to the same basic extra degree. And by doing so, you increase the chances that your overall messaging you're conveying will be better and more fully absorbed by the subconscious. For more contemporary proof of the efficiency of ambiguity, I direct your attention to just about any runway in the fashion capitals of the world. Pay special attention to the expression of the model's as they trapeze across this elevated platform. They're deliberately, uniformly, ambiguous, neither smiling nor frowning. Result? You become fascinated. You look at their faces of the observer, seating and paying close attention. Is it the latest creation from the House of Dior? or is it something from Gucci, right? Are their brains fixated on the models themselves, particularly their faces? If we go one step further, if you watch one of those TV shows, take conscious notice of where you find yourself looking. I think you'll be surprised to discover how much time you spend looking at the model's face. This is a brief reminder that our brains are designed to pay special attention to human faces. So why are you cutting them out of your marketing? Another example in an allied field of cosmetic marketing, some smart advertisers feature models with ambiguous expressions in their print advertising. Skim through a beauty book, and you'll probably find a few of these ads in there, some of which we've actually created ourselves. And if you actually look at the brain's performance, you'll see that it will benefit both the end consumer and the user. We know that neurologically, it is ambiguity of the model's expression that helps attract and hold their attention. And of course, we're going to look at the uh, Hattu or Kattu or the cosmetics that all the stars are at the show, but we're ultimately drawn to pay attention in part because our brains are presented with a little mystery along the runway. And now you know why the brain loves a good mystery, but be careful not to make it too hard. Megan and I were sitting down doing a puzzle one night. We got this uh, Angels and Airwaves sponsored puzzle that was like a, she loves those uh, breakout rooms. And we got one, and it was just too fucking hard. We sat down for probably four hours trying to figure out this in-home murder mystery, ended up giving up, searching online, searching through Reddit, searching through forums, and we couldn't find it anywhere. So eventually we just gave up, and now it sits in a closet in my box, and uh, we're we're never going to open it again. It's not going to happen. It was too hard. And I want you to explore, and I encourage you to explore how you might factor some of this knowledge into your next brilliant marketing campaign. Told you I had a few more things for you. because so I always like to try to drive extra value. And now I could make this a, uh, another episode, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to give you one more thing. One more thing and then we'll cut it off because I want to be able to give this to you in the next episode, but I want you to really understand what I'm talking about here first. Let's call this uh, eye drops awareness and audiences. So, what can neurological testing tell us about the effectiveness of advertising? A lot, a great deal. And a real world example of this is that a major international pharmaceutical company wanted to evaluate how effective a TV commercial was for the brand of its allergy relief eye drops. The problem it's a super tough category. Uh, Asking customers what they thought or how they felt about it and remembering about using products like eyedrops is super challenging. Attempting to distill those reactions to a TV spot for the product adds uh, a lot of height to that bar. And most people will try to make a good faith effort, but as I've already talked about multiple times until I've been blue in the face, uh, we have no idea how to articulate most of the time why we were attracted to what we were attracted to or honest. So the complication around this campaign was that it was a new message. So this particular ad introduced a new product that was once-a-day eye drops compared to the previous version of the product where it required multiple applications throughout the day. From long experiences, the company knew that asking people if they got the message about the new feature did not always yield a great response. So just by asking the question, the response is compromised to begin with. And depending on which you... uh, which choice you list first. Even if you put the choices at equal level on the page uh, or on the screen, day one or day two, twice a day, once a day, still one has to come first. That confounds memory recall and your research is bunk from the beginning. So the solution to this is that they took a TV spot that was 30 seconds long, but typically that costs millions of dollars to produce an air. So uh, the 30 seconds had to do some heavy lifting. And the key questions that This pharmaceutical company wanted to know where, what is the overall effectiveness of the TV spot? Is there a different response based on gender? Does the spot promote purchase intent? Is the once a day message received? Are other messages received? Which part is particularly memorable and interesting? And how quickly does the spot wear out? We call this ad fatigue. So pretty standard questions you would want to know, right? Especially if you're about to drop some mad money on an ad spot, you want to know if it's going to work and how well it's going to work, which is really what all they were asking about was surrounded by. So they tested an even 50-50 split of male and females who saw the ad three times. Keep in mind the critically important point made earlier about uh, sample size, right? We've talked about this before, that the size of the audience matters because neurological testing measures at the deep subconscious level at an early stage of the cognitive timeline, fully scientifically valid results are achieved using a sample size that are one-tenth the size required by the survey. So, we're already dealing with a small base, right? We measured how strong the concepts are and the attributes of once a day, fast acting, and the relief that was resonated deep inside the subconscious. Now, because full-brain EEG-based neurological testing combined with eye tracking and GSR measurements generates such an enormous volume of research data, A typical ad study like this produces approximately 5 billion data points, and we apply some 40 billion floating data points of computational processing power to analyze them. And the results are usually extraordinarily rich in detail, and this one was as well. When you look and present this to the client with precise information on the exact levels of attention, emotional engagement, memory recall, and you were able to spot the simulated effectiveness score, you can break all those out into further male and female demographics, eye tracking, pinpoint at pixel level, where the visual focus was, and allocated to any secondary data. So when we start looking at this, what's the real nitty-gritty, right? The uh, the real results of this, we were looking at what's called wearout factor. So the wearout factor for the spot was clearly superior to the norm. So our Our research into this into advertising effectiveness shows that the typical commercial registers measurable habituation after three to five viewings. So what does that mean? The ad is going to start to wear out after three to five times it's viewed. But beyond those results, you can start to provide people with this idea of a set of six specific recommendations on how to improve neurological effectiveness on the spot even further, how to alter the copy achieve even higher scores with both men and women, a strategy for maximizing media buying in terms of reach versus frequency levels and more, and when millions of dollars are at stake, and in this example, a critical new product formulation is being introduced in a very competitive category, EEG-based full-brain neurological testing can deliver extremely detailed knowledge and insights about how well advertising platforms will perform and specific actionable ways to improve the performance. And one of the issues that we've seen be kicked around inside the advertising and marketing circles for a few years is about this idea of priming. And this is what I really wanted to get into on this episode, and I'm glad that we're getting into it with the little bit of time that we have left. The debate has truly been around uh, whether it's an actual phenomenon, and if so, how it actually works. And for those of you who are not in advertising or television business or media buying Priming is defined as the degree to which a viewer's perception of and response to advertising within a certain program is affected by the nature and the content of the program itself. So the opposite of that is to a lesser extent that it can be defined as the extent to which an advertising affects viewers' outlook on the response of the program materials it sponsors. So in average terms, for viewers, uh, does a program or does a show impact ad effectiveness? Do ads impact programs, and if so, how much and under what circumstances? The question has lingered in the industry because of the difficult inherent of parsing out all this information, the effects of the ad and the program, and you can certainly measure viewership levels quantitatively, that tells you how many viewers were tuned in at any given moment, but were they really tuned in to the other senses of that phase? where they moved into a measurable way, up or down, in terms of attention, emotional engagement, memory retention, purchase intent, perception of novelty and awareness, and the other key metrics that most advertising and marketers use. The key majority of this is that when this starts to happen, it truly only exists, but it's not important to anyone, though. It not only exists, but is even more important than anyone could ever imagine. Really, raising the importance of priming as a key factor in the media planning and buying process can result in commercials gaining more attention, all the KPIs that we talked about earlier, and even a return on your investment increase. And I want to shed some light on this. I'll offer another real-world example it's one that in light of increasing popularity of so-called reality TV has even more relevance than ever. So one of my, and this is going back to one of my favorite shows is how we started to tie this in. Uh, I love intervention. Coming as a psychopharmacologist first, I love watching people uh, get help for drug rehabilitation and getting interventions into different areas of their life. Seeing people's lives improve for the better is always given me those, all the warm and fuzzies. Let's put it that way. It's a program that has attracted a lot of uh, critical praise and viewer interest and loyalty, and in no small part due to its gritty realism and powerful emotional content, right? Same thing with Locked Up or the First 48, right? It's very emotional and very uh, very real. And the series, if you guys have never watched, features families, friends, and coworkers intervening with individuals who suffer from any type of condition from alcoholism to drug addiction to serious afflictions. And these souls have reached or are rapidly approaching uh, a critical point in their life. And it's no exaggeration to say that uh, without a turnaround, a lot of these lives are really at risk. But for advertisers, the question often arises with programming, and that's intense as this is, how will the viewers perceive my brand or product or service or message in this environment? Will I gain or lose awareness or impact or effectiveness? Will consumers be more or less likely to motivate or to be buying what we have to offer? And will my brand benefit or not, or by being present, will it actually go down in value? More than broadcast advertising dollars hang in the balance, it also applies for social. What was shown right before my ad? Where was it placed inside of somebody's feed? and with priming being able to influence brand image and corporate reputation and other critical company assets, understanding priming and how it works plays a critical role in deciding which ads to pair with which programs, where to place your ads on certain social media channels, and how to start to use some of the Google display network to your advantage. Now we can go through the experiment, but it was kind of 10,000 foot overview because we are running long on this episode. Uh, Subjects were screened. They were shown two programs of it. One was an episode of intervention and the other was a successful primetime dramatic program from another network creating powerful and highly personal storylines. Essentially, we watched six commercials featuring a cross-section of advertising and commercial pods, which is grouping of various commercials. For those of you that aren't inside the media buying, pods are like groups of commercials that typically go together and they fit certain timelines. And within each program, Categories included automotive, food, insurance, personal care, retail, telecom, all all the traditional stuff. And the findings were actually super clear and compelling. Neurological testing showed that far from negatively impacting viewers' perceptions, ad placement in the emotionally powerful program environment of intervention actually enhanced viewers' engagement with the advertising. Now, this was a small sample of results, but 3 of 6 commercials scored significantly higher for all the effectiveness of intervention than the comparative drama. The other 3 scored essentially the same in both shows. And then when we looked at the emotional engagement, intervention scored highest in each of the 3 or each of the 6 advertising categories. The research went on to document that the viewers remained highly engaged with intervention throughout the duration of the program and that the level of emotional involvement resulted in ad placement later in the show suffering no drop-off in overall effectiveness. So the key takeaway from this research was that the priming effect on commercials was quantified and unequivocal, advertising benefits from appearing in this emotionally strong programming environment. And this is where I'm going to cut it. I gave you guys a lot of homework, a lot of information that's going to be used, And on the next episode, I want to talk about how we can start to apply some of this to the sales process. And I think you're going to find a lot of really interesting facts, especially for those of you that are in sales, uh, because we're all selling, everybody's selling every day in some way, shape or form. You're selling your family, you're selling your life, you're selling your business, you're selling a product, a service, you're selling yourself to your boss to keep your job. Everybody's constantly selling. So if you get out of sync, does that mean that you're out of sales?